Welcome to the Abundant Grace Podcast, where we discuss the gospel, freedom in Christ, and victorious Christianity. My name is Emily Lewis, and I am so honored that you are here. Sometimes Christianity can feel complicated or become heavy. I'm here to lighten that load. I pray that the chats had on this broadcast will empower and encourage you in your walk with Jesus. Hi, friends. I am so excited to be able to share this interview with you. If you have not met or read any of Pastor Carrie Schmidt's work, uh, this is going to be a treat. Either way, it's a loaded episode. I think it's going to be one that you will uh, want to put on repeat just to get saturated in the gospel and be reminded to approach the Bible and our relationship with God from a love standpoint and through the lens of the gospel. So enjoy. It is hot off the press. I just got a chance to record it this morning and I don't want it to sit in the queue of episodes waiting to be published. I just want to get this one out there and I hope that it is a huge blessing to you as I know it is a blessing to my heart and an encouragement to me. Welcome to the show, Pastor Carrie. Thank you for taking the time to sit down with me. Oh, it's a privilege. I'm, I'm happy to. Thank you. I like to, well, if you'd like to introduce yourself, uh, that would be a great place to start and then we can jump in. Sure. My name is Kerry Schmidt. I pastor Emmanuel Baptist Church in Newington, Connecticut, and uh, married my high school sweetheart. We've been married three, uh, 30 years, and um, we have three kids, Lance, Larry, and Haley. They're all adults. Our youngest is Haley. She just got engaged. We have four grandkids um, and two daughter-in-laws, and um, we've been here in Connecticut for eight and a half years. And we've been engaged in just a lot of church revitalization and discipling new believers. We've seen uh, a wonderful congregation of new Christians form, and um, we're just taking it one day at a time, especially through COVID. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I would love to talk to you about how to, the best way to approach the Bible, how to read it uh, and let it apply to all of our life. So what is the way that you would, what would you call it the best way to approach reading the scripture? So uh, the, the simplest answer to that question would be um, a gospel-centered view of scripture. And the, when I say gospel-centered, I mean this in a theological perspective of what the Bible is. And, and the, the phrasing that's helped me the most, and I taught this in a sermon series not long ago called The Big Picture. It was about a five or six, I forget how many week series, it may have been seven, um, where I was trying to give my church family the, a big view of scripture and what is, what is the Bible. And I think the starting point is to say, uh, there's three statements. Uh, they're not original with me. I think probably they came from uh, Tim Keller or, or Paul Tripp or somebody like that, but mm -hmm. uh, authors that, that I've gleaned from. The first is that the Bible is most essentially God's story of redemptive history. It is most essentially a redemptive historical narrative. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's important to ask what is the Bible is that we approach the Bible with a set of assumptions 
of what it is. And that forms a framework that forms the grid or the paradigm through which we're looking at the Bible. It's the lens through which we look. So just like if I put on, you know, blue lenses or red lenses, everything is going to be cast with a blue or a red hue. The lens I look at the Bible with casts a hue over the whole Bible. So mm -hmm. um, if I, if, if the Bible is first and foremost, a book, uh, you know, a life manual or a book of do's and don'ts or a book of stories that are disconnected, I'm going to lose a lot of what it really is. So to say it's first and foremost, God's story of redemptive, a redemptive historical narrative is to say it's, it's a story. So Genesis to Revelation, God chose to stitch together this account. Um, and of all that God's done in human history, this is what he picked, you know, to put in the Bible. So I think mm -hmm. like what of all the things God could have put in the Bible this is what he chose, which means book to book, story to story, character to character, uh, genre to genre, you know, there's, there's a purpose to it. It stitches together. You start the story with God creating, you end the story with God recreating. Mm -hmm. You start the story with God, um, with the, with, with a perfect creation that falls into sin and, and failure and spiritual death. You end the story with a new heaven and a new earth and a new creation made perfect forever which in which no sin can ever, you know, be materialized. So in between the starting point and the end point, you have this, this continuing unfolding narrative and it's all connected. So first statement is it's most essentially, and it's so important that your listeners or viewers catch that term essentially, because it's not to say the Bible isn't other things mm. as well. What is it most essentially? What is it first? What is it predominantly? Mm -hmm. The second statement is the Bible is most essentially about Jesus, not about me. Now, the reason that's important is, number one, when Jesus taught the Bible, he said it was all about him, okay? So that's the number one authority is Jesus said, search the scriptures, in them you think you have eternal life, they are they that testify of me. In Luke 24, twice, when he was after the resurrection, he's teaching his disciples. It says he taught them from Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, all things concerning himself. Well, that's the whole Old Testament. You know, Moses, the prophet, Moses is essentially the history of Israel. The prophets um, would be, you know, all from all the period of the kings and coming into the end of the book of Malachi. And then the Psalms, you know, the poetry. So Jesus said, this is all about me. Um, and I don't mean that in a, in a mysterious, mystical, imaginative way, like, like every, like David's five stones all symbolize something about Jesus. That's, that's, that's uh, mysticism. Okay. I mean, in very tangible ways, like links of a chain. Mm -hmm. There's a reason that the book of Ruth shows up where it does and leads into first Samuel, which leads into second Samuel. There's a reason that all these stories and to say, it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. Literally. In other words, it's all building up to him. Mm -hmm. You know, the arrival of King Jesus, the Messiah, it, the story all builds up to, and then the story from Jesus 
forward all folds out of. So everything from Genesis to Matthew 1 is leading up to Jesus, and everything from the resurrection forward is what's happening because of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So very literally, then we could also talk about uh, the symbolism. We could talk about the, the the Old Testament laws and sacrificial system, and and Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the perfect eternal king. Uh, Jesus is the final prophet. So prophet, priest, king, all through the Old Testament. So there's themes mm-hmm. that all those themes, Jesus is the fulfillment, you know, He's the greater David. He's the greater um, Isaiah. He's the greater Jeremiah. He's the greater, he's always the greater final fulfillment of all the themes of the Old Testament. So Bible is God's redemptive historical narrative. God, the Bible is most about, mostly about Jesus, not about me. Now, let me say one more thing about that. If I come at the Bible thinking it's not all about Jesus, then I just by default make it all about me which leads to this third statement. The Bible is about, is most essentially about what God has done, not most essentially about what we should do. Mm -hmm. So when we, when we take away the historical narrative, we turn it into a book of stories and instructions. When we take away the preeminence and the essence of it's all about Jesus, we, we put ourselves in the center of the story and we, we, moralize everything. We start asking Mm -hmm. ourselves, what do I do? What do I do with this? In other words, that's the first question we ask the Bible is what do I do? And and inevitably what we produce from that is a performance-based Christianity. So we're asking ourselves in every story, how do I fit into this and what do I do? Mm -hmm. What we should be asking ourselves is what, what is God revealing about himself and about his redemptive story what has he done? What does this tell me that he's done mm-hmm. and who he is for me? And, and that leads me to, to, to a gospel view. And a gospel view is I bring nothing. God brings everything. And his grace has been poured out to me. And, and I'm welcomed back into his love and grace by the gospel. And now I love him so much. I want to respond. Right. And then, and then all the doing comes out of that. So Mm -hmm. how do I respond? How do I love God back? How do I say thank you? And that's where serving and giving and honoring the Lord and pleasing the Lord, all that comes back into play. Uh, It's just not the first question I ask. The first question I ask is, who is God? What has he done? Mm -hmm. Who does that make me? Right. And now because of who I am and who he is, what do I, what do, what do I do? What do I want to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, because it, all of our doing should flow out of loving and loving kind of naturally flows out of knowing, knowing, knowing what, knowing who God is, knowing what he's done. I said to our church family this past week, I was teaching out of the book of Habakkuk. <clears throat> and I said, um, sometimes we impose a tone on scripture that, that may or may not be accurate. And so, so I was teaching, you know, give thanks for all things, give thanks in all things from Ephesians 5, 1 Thessalonians. And I was going back to Habakkuk. Habakkuk 1, he complains to God. Habakkuk 2, uh, God answers his complaint with bad news and says, yeah, it's, it's going to go badly. You're going to lose your nation and your national, 
national identity. Um, Habakkuk 3 is kind of Habakkuk's response to he's grieving this terrible news. But he ends the book by saying, even though things are going to go badly, there's going to be no fruit on the vine and the herds, are, the flocks are going to fail and everything's going to come undone. He says, yet I will, I'm trying to remember the exact quote. I, you know what, let me look it up because I don't want to get it wrong. And it's so powerful. Um, and I've got my Bible software here, so I might as well. Um, so give me two seconds here. Habakkuk 3, the very end of the chapter, um, he says, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall the fruit be in the vines, labor of the olive shall fail, fields shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there's no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. So behavior-based Christianity is basically I'm behaving for God's blessings. Mm-hmm. And so God, I want to please God so he'll be good to me. You're like, I'm earning God's blessings. Well, Habakkuk's sense was I'm going to lose a lot of God's blessings, but I still have God and I'm going to rejoice in him because he's the God of my salvation and he's my strength. So a gospel view says, um, I'm going to rejoice in God for what he is, for who he is, for what he's done for me. And I'm going to love him back. And it empower the gospel empowers me. Here's what I said to the church, coming back to the tone. I said, Habakkuk is rejoicing the Lord, not because he has to, because he wants to. And God's tone in the book is not, he's not kneeling on Habakkuk's neck with his knee and screaming in Habakkuk's psyche, give thanks, rejoice in me, love me. He's, he's not forcing it. He's welcoming it. He's saying, Habakkuk, I'm God, you can trust me. And um, I'm going to take care of you, even though I'm disciplining your nation. I just said, it's a love story. We, sometimes we read a tone into God that just isn't there in the Bible. Mm. He's fierce. He's a judge. He's fearsome if you don't know him. But once you know him and once you're redeemed by the gospel, it's a love story. Right. Um, so I'm sorry, Emily, for talking too long, but you asked me a really big question. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, that answers a couple of my questions because... That's how we can read the, the gospel in the whole Bible is by seeing what he's already done for us. Yes. So how does seeing the Bible through the lens of the gospel shape how we see God? Well, the gospel is what, so God, when he, when he came to Exodus 20, he's dealing with an infant nation, Israel, they're, they were a family, and now they're a nation of slaves, okay? They're not a nation yet. They're just a bunch of ruffian slaves that have been rescued from Egypt. And he's going to organize them into a nation under his kingship, a theocracy. And he's going to give them some laws. He gives moral laws, civil laws, and ceremonial laws. The moral laws carry forward to today. Don't kill, don't steal, you know, the Ten Commandments. That's my email. Sorry about that. No um, the the civil laws mostly don't carry forward today. They're you know cleansing and dietary laws that had to do with how this ruffian, rugged people group in an ancient time, primitive primitive life, how they stay healthy and how they function together. And then ceremonial laws were had to do with how they relate to God through worship, 
which were all a picture of the gospel, okay? Um, but when God starts the giving of his laws, he says, I am the Lord, which brought you out of Egypt, which brought you out of the house of bondage. Basically, I'm your deliverer, okay? So before he says, don't do this, don't do this, always do this, before he gives any dues, he says, here's who I am, mm -hmm. and here's what I've done for you, okay? Now, that's, that's a gospel view. A gospel view starts with who is God and what has he done for me, okay? And the way that shapes everything is, is this. Let's say, do you have children, Emily? I do. How many kids do you have? I have four. The oldest is almost five. Okay. So your five-year-old boy or girl? Girl. What's her name? Olivia. So let's say that you and I are standing on a street corner in uh, Montana's busiest town. <laughs> you don't know me, but you and Olivia are standing there on the street corner and it's a busy day, rush hour, traffic coming and going. And we're getting ready to cross the street and uh, you're distracted and Olivia steps into the street and you don't see it, but she steps in the way of a coming bus. And I see it. You don't know me. I don't know you, but I see your daughter in harm's way. And let's say I run out into the street, grab Olivia, throw her back up toward the curb and I get hit by the bus. Okay. Now you don't know me. I don't know you, but I just saved Olivia's life. Um, so what you know is I've done something gigantic for you. I've done something extremely sacrificial. Okay. And let's say that I live, let's say it doesn't kill me, but it just severely maims me, you know, it paralyzes me and I'm, and I'm mm -hmm. in a wheelchair for life. So the question is, how does what little you know of me is that I'm, I, I loved your family without knowing you. I sacrificed my safety and my mobility for the rest of my life for you, for your daughter's life. I risked my own life for your daughter's life. Mm -hmm. So you know that about me. And then, if, so if I said, um, how do you feel, feel about, about, me? you know, on that, in light of that occasion, how would you feel about me? You would, you would say, well, good night. I would, I would live forever with a depth of gratitude that I could never, I would, a sense of love and sacrifice that I would never even begin to try to repay. Cause how do you even repay that? Mm -hmm. But you say, I, I couldn't contain it. I can't repay it, but I could never contain it. Uh, and I, I just need to know how can I say thank you to you? How can I show respect and honor to you? And you wouldn't need to be told to, um, and I might even say, you don't, don't, you don't owe me anything. Like I'm, I'm glad your daughter lived, you know? So my point is God has given us radical, extravagant, lavish, sacrificial love. And out of that, out of that sense, like, why wouldn't I want to follow, obey, serve, if God says, here's, if you really want to say thank you, here's how to say thank you. Give me glory, serve me, honor me, advance the gospel, build my church, love my church. Um, why wouldn't I? You know, like, why mm -hmm. wouldn't I want that? What well, God has done so much for me. So a gospel view of scripture, it, to say it succinctly, turns the Christian life into, 
it, it, it transitions it from duty and obligation and have to, to want to. Mm-hmm. It, it motivates it in love. It motivates it with grace. Um, and it just takes any sense of obligation out of it, um, which it makes God a loving deliverer instead of a, an oppressive slave driver. Mm-hmm taskmaster. And a lot of churches over time have gravitated to, a lot of Christians have just adopted more than they know, God is a taskmaster. God expects me. God requires Mm me. You know, I get asked all the time, how much do I have to give at church? (laughs) You know, and people that come from other churches, they expect me to say, well, God says you have to give 10%. That's a tithe. But if you understand the Bible, God doesn't say we have to give a tithe. Right. He says we, we don't have to give anything. He says, not of necessity nor grudgingly. I mean, I don't know how much more clear it can get. You don't have to. <laughs> but if you ask God, what do I have to give? He'd say, you don't have to give anything. What do you want to give? And if you'd said, well, I don't want to give anything, then you have a problem. How can you look at the cross of Jesus? How can you contemplate his suffering for you? How can you understand what he's done for you and not want to say thank you, Mm, not want to love him? And what the answer to that would be either you either you've never met him or you've you really don't understand what he did for you. So when people say, you know, so I say you don't have to give anything. And then I just smile at them and they say, no, but really, what do I have to give? And I go, you don't have to give anything. And I say, listen, here's what you need to do. You need to read the story of Jesus and think about what he's done for you. And then you need to ask yourself, what do I want to do in response? Now, if you want an Old Testament example, God said, start with 10%. And that was kind of a national tax. It was required of Israel to give 10%. But then God said, beyond that, there's these things called peace offerings and burnt offerings that were thanks offerings. They were free will. They were imperfect. Uh, they weren't for, for the atonement of sin. They were just out of God's blessings. And God basically said, I'm going to bless you so much. I'm going to give you flocks and herds and fields of grain and produce and vineyards of grapes. And you can bring to me offerings of thanks and um, out of the love and gratitude of your heart. And then when they did, God's so great, he, he would receive their offering, the burnt offering, that was a thanks offering, he'd receive it, and then he'd give it back to them. Mm-hmm. They'd now go eat it. Yeah, that's um, incredible. So, yeah, so a gospel view of scripture just turns God into a very generous, lavish, lavishly loving redeemer, mm-hmm. and then sets me free to serve him in love. I say to a church family all the time, if we can't get there by loving Jesus, I don't want to get there any other mm. way. So whether it's attendance, whether it's giving, serving, being on a team, you know, I say this, do what you want to do in love for God. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, what that creates in the church is a culture where we all, no one's competing or comparing to one another. We're not trying to outdo each other. Uh, we're not, we're not driven by a performance culture. We're driven by a love culture. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, love motivates. This is a secret, okay? 
Love motivates me to give more and serve more than duty or obligation. Right? Right. Yeah. You do, you do more for your kids because you love them than, than you would do be, if you were the babysitter of some other kids and somebody was paying you to, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Love is, love is the most sustainable motivation of the Christian life. Hmm. I love that. Why do you think so often the Bible is not approached and God is not approached from that perspective and that lens? Well, um, fear. Okay. Now I'm going to build on that fear. We, we naturally in our flesh gravitate to performance. Our whole world is built this way. Okay. Right. We perform in every environment. Um, we perform to get grades. We perform to get spots on a team. We perform to get a job. We perform to keep a job. We perform to receive recognition and bonuses and year-end raises and whatever. The whole world is built on, the horizontal world is built on performance, okay? Mm-hmm. So it's just so hardwired into us that it's really foreign. It's very rare that we ever encounter truly unconditional love. Mm. Even in our own families, uh, most marriages are not built on unconditional love. Unconditional love is I love you no matter what, no matter, no matter how you behave, I love you. Mm-hmm. That's how God loves us. Marriages should be unconditionally loving. Parents, family relationships should be unconditionally loving. We kind of know that intuitively, but because we, because we so naturally default to performance, when we start to relate to God, we just, we just intuitively impose on him a performance idea that he expects me to perform up to his standard and that he's just going to be better to me if I'm good. Mm -hmm. Um, The fact is that's not true. He's been already exceedingly excessively good to us when we were bad. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, But there are built-in blessings to obedience. Okay. I mean, there's no doubt that Obeying God brings blessing. But what does that mean? This is really important. If I, diso- if I disobey God, is he withholding blessings? Is God like sitting up in heaven, holding back all of his goodness until I'm at my best? No. Okay. He's good to me at my worst and at my best. It's more, it's more that disobedience removes me from the experience of those blessings. Mm-hmm. Like the prodigal son, when he ran from God, um, ceased to experience the love of the father. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then when he returned, he was brought back into that love. It's not that the father ever withheld mm-hmm. his love. It's that the son removed himself from it. So that's what disobedience does. It, it, it causes me to lose the experience and the sense of, of God's presence and blessing. It's not that God goes, oops, you're bad. I'm, I'm taking back my blessings. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, so, but it's also the sense that God's boundaries are for my blessing. Mm-hmm. In other words, God's laws were, they don't benefit him. He gave mm-hmm. them, right. this, is how, this is how life is wired. And if, if you want to experience life at its best, then live within these boundaries. Um, so, um, but we, so we default we default to performance. And the reason I say fear is this. In all of our performance-based environments, our, our performance is driven by reward on one hand and fear on the other. 
So I want to gain the advantages of performing well, and I want to avoid the disadvantages of failing. Mm -hmm. That's where the fear comes in. I fear the repercussions of failure. Okay. So if I don't perform at work, I fear losing my job. Uh, if I, if I don't perform at home, I fear losing my spouse. Mm -hmm. So therefore, if I don't perform for God, I fear losing his love or his favor or his best. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, so fear is kind of this unseen driver sometimes that drives us to perform. What the gospel says is perfect love casteth out fear. Okay. So, okay. Well, somebody's going to say, wait, we're told to fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay. Yeah. But there's two kinds of fear. There's terror and dread and there's reverence and awe. Okay. And terror and dread is the kind of fear I have of God before I'm redeemed, before the gospel, before all of his love has been poured out on me. Why? I fear judgment. I, I'm, I'm the object of condemnation in sin. But once my sin is nailed to the cross and I've been reborn in Christ, there is no more judgment to be poured out on me. Jesus took it. He paid it all. So now my fear completely transitions to reverence and awe. And the terror and dread are absolutely banished. I have no reason ever to be terrified of God. God secures me in the gospel and in love and grace and basically says, you are unconditionally loved for the rest of your life and for eternity and nothing, your performance cannot change it or alter this in any way. So basically, the, the truth of the gospel banishes any reasonable reason to fear losing God's blessing or losing God's favor, which means I can operate solely out of love. Mm -hmm. okay. So a lot of people, let me just give you a, just a simple example. A lot of people give to their church because they fear what God will do to them if they don't. Okay, now that's an un, that's a that's a skewed theology. That's an unbiblical idea. Um, and sometimes preachers and pastors kind of build this idea. Like I've heard it said dozens of times: if you don't tithe, God will get your tithe one way mm. or another. Which is it's terrible. That's so terrible. Yeah. And they go into detail. He'll make your car break down. He'll do this. He'll do this. And really, what they're saying is. God's got this big sledgehammer, and if you don't give to him, he's going to whack you. And, um, boy, I stop and think about that, and I think, what a petty God he must be. Really? Right. Like, he didn't get my bucks, so he's going to whack me and make my tires go flat, you know? He's going to make my car break down? He needs my $100 that bad? No, thanks. I don't want that God. No. Like, if he's that petty, if he's that vindictive, if he's that human in his irrational emotion no thanks yeah no the kind of god our heart longs for is the god who has already given us all of his love um so we can be instilled with this fear that if i don't perform god's gonna whack me which isn't the truth it's not what he says okay um giving to god 
is a free will expression of love. Not giving to him dishonors him, yes. Displeases him, yes. Um, misses out on all the joy and all the liberty and, and wonder of watching him provide for me, yes. Um, but if I'm giving in fear, I'm not giving in love. That's the bottom. Mm -hmm. I'm giving to keep God off my back. Then I'm not giving because I'm so loved. Right. Yeah. And giving because I'm loved is so joyful. You know, God loveth a cheerful giver. How do you, how do you be a cheerful giver? If somebody yells at me loud enough, does that make me cheerful? If, I, if, he's, if a preacher says, give cheerfully, does that make me cheerful? No, <laughs> no. I can fake it, you know, yeah. you know, what makes me authentically cheerful is when I realize I have nothing to fear. Greed can be released from my heart. God's going to provide everything I need. And out of all of his provision, I can give back and say, I love you. And thank you. Suddenly mm -hmm. I'm free. And mm -hmm. suddenly it becomes a cheerful experience. So. Yeah. Hello, friends. A quick interruption to let you know about a awesome resource that is coming your way next Wednesday. The Victorious Christian Conference is a free conference that is aimed at helping you grow more confident in your relationship with God daily. We'll have topics ranging from overcoming shame to identity in Christ to relational prayer and the privilege of prayer. And I can't wait to bring it to you live. That's next Wednesday, December 9th, starting at 9 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. Go to the link below this episode and it's victorieuschristianconference.com slash invitation and sign up there. And You'll get an email with all of the details. I can't wait to see you there. So I guess that could even transition to the next, I think the next, the natural outpouring of that. Once you realize who God says or who God is, you can begin to realize who he says you are. And yeah. you, ha you have a book coming out on identity in Christ, don't you? Yes. Yeah. Next year. Can yeah. we talk a little bit about it? Yeah, absolutely. Please. Okay, so um, there's a lot of really good books on, on gospel identity, who I am in Christ. Almost all of them take the same approach, and I could list any of probably a dozen that basically go through all the New Testament synonyms of who, who Jesus says I am. I'm, I'm God's child. I'm adopted. I'm redeemed. I'm sanctified. I'm set apart. You know, I could go through all these things. I'm God's treasure you know he loves I'm, I'm unconditionally loved all these things and chapter by chapter they unfold the uh the the names or the synonyms for who i am in christ i love all those books i encourage you to read those books they're great but um they don't this my book is a completely different identity book in this sense first of all what is identity identity is your core sense of self, of who you are. Um, so this book unpacks what is identity? How is that shaped? And horizontally, the world gives us only two ways to shape our sense of self. And we all have a sense of self. 
and we all are cultivating it, kind of constructing it all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're, we're building with the materials, to use a metaphor, construction materials, psychologically and spiritually, that the world has given to us. And in the horizontal world, there's only two sources of self. Uh, and to say it real simply, either I am who others say I am, or I am who I say I am. So it's like either other people define me or I define me. Now the book unpacks this in great detail, but um, the most of us come into life with other people defining us, okay? Uh, I am my parents' child. I belong to this family in this city, in this time period, I'm in this nation, in this culture. And, and I list in the book, you know, I don't know, 18 or 20 identity factors that other people have, that either happened to us by default, like my skin color uh, or my, my name. You're like, I never chose Carrie. (laughs) I mean, that's like one of the worst names ever for a guy. Like everybody thinks that's a girl's name. (laughs) That was given to me, right? My family of origin was given to me. Um, So our, by default, our self-definition kind of is handed to us by family, by culture, by ethnicity, um, by just where we landed in time and space, okay? But as we grow, um, our society kind of shows us we can arrive at a strong self by performance. So by living up to everybody else's expectations, mm-hmm. by making everybody else happy. And that's what I mean by others define me. I'm hopelessly enslaved to keeping everybody else happy. Hmm. whoever they are and whatever they say I have to do or be. Okay. And this could be religious. It could be secular. It could be philosophical. It could be really practical. Like I grew up on my dad's farm, so I have to be a farmer. Um, Or I grew up in my parents' church. So I have to be, you know, a part of their church. It's imposed on us. Okay. For, For better or for worse, right or wrong. It's just kind of outside of us and it's imposed on us. Okay. Um. What, it, what our culture is telling us today is that that's bad. Now, what the book t- tells us is that it's partially good and partially bad, okay? And, and I unpack this in the book. It's, it's not all bad, but it's not all good either, okay? Mm-hmm. It's insufficient, okay? Mm. It's destined for failure. I'm going to let somebody down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run out of steam. I'm going to hit a wall. I'm going to fail in some way at some point. Okay. Well, then that system says, well, fake it. <laughs> well, hide mm. your okay. Well, the, the world has come around the last few hundred years and especially this last generation and has constructed an alternate narrative. The alternate narrative is, is don't let others define you. You define you. So this is the rebel. This is the, I'm sick of what everybody else is telling me. I'm going to run for my life and I'm going to define myself. I don't have to be who anybody says I can be who I say. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's in every Disney movie, like every single one of them. It's the let it go narrative. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on the cold never bothered me anyway. Okay. I've just got to let it go. I've got to be, I got to be me. Okay. And, and the narrative is, Everybody else's expectations are oppressive. You can never live up to them. 
So throw it all, all, all to the wind and run into your truest self. You go discover you and you be you. The problem is that sounds good, but it's also flawed. And is it good or bad? It's both. Is it true or false? It's partially both. It's mostly false, but there's a little truth there. And so the world says, look, you have two options, either you define you or everybody else defines you. And when you really explore those, which we do in the book, you end up at this dead end at both places going, neither one are really sufficient. Um, so the question that the book raises by about the midpoint is, um, is, there a, is there another way? Is there a third identity option? Um, do others have to define me? Do I have to define me? And if so, where do I even start? Sounds promising, like go find your dreams, but it's also oppressive because like my, I have millions and millions of options. Which one is really me? Mm -hmm. And it's lonely because now I'm kind of on my own deciding who I am. And it's very deceptive and destructive. So at the midpoint of the book, we introduce what's called a gospel identity. Okay. And I don't want to give away, I don't want to be a spoiler. Um, <laughs> gospel identity is the best. It's all the strength and hope and the best of both fragile identities and none of the risk, none of the, mm -hmm. none of the downside. Um, but it's only found in Jesus. It's only, and it, it, so from there, the book, so the book is called Stop Trying, How to Receive, Not Achieve, your real identity. Um, it's three parts, losing, finding, and flourishing. Mm. Part one is how God breaks down our weak identities. And then finding, Jesus said, if we lose ourselves for him and the gospel, we'll find ourselves. Okay. So what do we have to lose? And then what do we find and how do we find it in Christ? And what is it? And then the third part is flourishing. How does this thing we find in the gospel, this new identity, how does it become experienced? Mm. How, does it change, how does it change me? And a lot of times church messages, Jesus now get to work. Okay. Um, but that wasn't the message of the New Testament and the first followers of Jesus, the first followers of Jesus in the book of Acts experienced a total transformation, but it was completely organic. It surprised even them. Mm. And so what I do in the book is I go to Peter and Paul and John, and I go to these early book of Acts characters, and we examine how were they different after the resurrection, after they lost their weak selves, and found out who Jesus really was. How did that redefine them? And so that's where the book ends about the last third is looking at how does the gospel identity materialize and mm -hmm. grow in our lives in ways that we don't have to work at, that just happen to us. Mm -hmm. so, so anyway, it's available January the 7th. I don't know when this podcast will go <laughs> alive, but it's for pre-sale now. And it releases January the 7th. Awesome. Sounds great. I look forward to the reading it and the refresher on identity and being able to uh, 
frame everything I do and who I am based on who Jesus is and what he's already done. And so huge. Yeah. We have to come back to it every single day. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Learning what it means to preach the gospel to ourselves. I, I, I'm sure you cover that uh, in how to, how yeah. to flourish in that identity. Yeah. yeah. And the book can be purchased pretty much anywhere, like Amazon or Walmart or Target online, you know. Okay. Uh, so, uh, or at moodypublishers.com. Um, and I think in the, it's on audio, it's on Kindle, it's digital. I, I do the reading on the audio as well. But um, it, uh, I think in the next year, we'll do some curriculum too for small group mm -hmm. stuff. We'll see how fun. Awesome. Thank you for taking the time to sit down with us today. I think we covered a ton and so, so much, it's so much value. So thank you. I enjoyed it. And sorry if I talked too long, but you start Not getting into these subjects are just rich. You know, it's like, it's hard to know. Uh, it's hard to know how to say it succinctly, but I hope it will be an encouragement to your yes. listeners. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Abundant Grace Podcast. I would love to connect with you, either to hear your story or hear your comments on today's episode. You can find me hanging out on Instagram, emily.abundantgrace, or send me an email, hello at emilyklewis.com. That's emily, the letter K, L-O-U-I-S dot com. Until next time, remember, God's grace abounds and won't ever run out.